Hello and welcome back to the Behind the Music Business podcast. This music business podcast with me, Danny Champion, where I talk to a whole host of individuals from various areas of the UK music business. This week's chat is with founder and managing director of Soho Music Group, Kate Young. I've known Kate for a number of years, first via my time in music publishing at Sony ATV and Peer Music, selling people like herself music. And then when I became, I guess, a competitor as a music supervisor at Sound Lounge. Uh, Kate was very uh, accommodating, had me into the wonderful studio complex that they have in Clerkenwell uh, to talk about everything that Soho does, including brand partnerships, and various assortment of composition and music supervision bits and pieces that they're involved with, as well as her trajectory into the industry uh, from her time in house at advertising agencies and then a few other bits and pieces like her work with the Guild of Music Supervisors. It was a great chat. I really appreciate her finding the time in a pretty busy schedule at the moment uh, to talk to me. Um, There's plenty, plenty more that I would love, love, love to chat to her about. Um, So I'm hoping, well, I would love to get her back on to talk in a bit more detail about some of the projects uh, that she wasn't able to talk about this time around. So yes, this is a podcast about music supervision, about brand partnerships. So I'll shut up. And here is my conversation with Kate Young of Soho Music. And stuff. So yeah, so how are things here at Soho? Yeah, it's it's all really good, thanks. It's been a very busy year so mm-hmm. far, um, after a kind of slightly quieter start. Um, right. We are relocating as well, which is exciting, okay. um, because we've outgrown the office space, so we're selling the studios, actually. All oh, right. Uh, which is very exciting for us, because we're now going to get a much bigger space in terms of office, um, because the office is very small, basically. Are you in a position to say where you're heading no. towards at the moment? <laughs> We will be, it's a top in. secret, top secret, okay. but we will be, we'll be staying within this area, so uh-huh. we'll still be very close proximity to the studios, um, and we just need, uh, yeah, the team has grown and we're expanding, and it's a really nice time for us to kind of do the next chapter. Mm-hmm. So music supervision's kind of taken a bit of a, an evolutionary step forward in the past few years it's yeah. exploded a little bit you've just said that you've yeah. gr- grown out of your of your yeah. gigs here i remember coming to see you when it was literally just you yep and now you've got a team <laughs> like of 12 I 12 think. now about 12 of us. yeah and i think also because when the way we're looking at the business is slightly different from traditional supervision right. so we've always been fairly non-traditional in the sense that we positioned ourselves by building our own recording studios and surrounding ourselves with well-known artists. So in our studios, for example, there's obviously Dot Major from London Grammar, there's Mm -hmm. um, 
Wiley, um, you know, there's kind of a really nice eclectic group of... Are they residents? Yeah, they're residents, the producers, yeah. that, you know, just to name a couple of them. But mm -hmm. it kind of gives you an idea of why we've done what we've done because it surrounds us with a certain level of access that no one else really has mm -hmm. um, because we're right in the thick of it you know we have all the artists coming in and out we get to know the writers yeah. you know the singers um, music managers everyone I'm involved. you get the A&R people coming in yeah. you get the publishers coming you in get A &Rs you get A&Rs coming in as well you get mix engineers and mix engineers work across everyone you mm -hmm. know whereas an artist will work within that genre specifically so it's a really good cross-section of people coming in and out of the studios mm -hmm. for us in what we do so that's always been the very non-traditional part of how we work is the, the studio side of things and the Soho music, the supervision side of things, are they not separate, because obviously not as part of the same group, but it's not like you've got a catalogue, you're not owning catalogue or anything like that, you're no. not suddenly having deals with certain writers for, for music for film and TV, it's very much this is a space where you can come and record, mm -hmm. you can either come in here as a resident or labels can book in the, the slots and things like that and it just means yeah. that it's just you're, you're looking for that creative vibe yeah. and feel yeah. for it it's not exactly. suddenly like um, you get kind of land grabbing no and it's very in terms of music scoring obviously we have access to all the guys here mm -hmm. and quite a few of them have done a lot of work for us over the years yep. but because of the way we operate creatively is always on a very non-exclusive basis nice. because it gives us the biggest spectrum of ideas mm -hmm. possible to be able to deliver to clients. Um, it means that you know, we have the option of working with people within the, our complex mm -hmm. which is, or you know, broadening and working with you know, composers who we found from the Royal College of Music where right. we do um, you know, master classes twice a year okay. and workshops to kind of attain the kind of sort of fresher traditional film school composers mm -hmm. and then we obviously work with all sorts of record labels and publishers so it means that you have full access to as mu as many people as possible really it's whatever the job dictates when did you think this was a good idea to go down this road and when was it that you bought this complex oh um we moved in here t february 2013 30. so was it always something in the back of your head kind of going this is where i want to go with this or it's did you just see an opportunity and go you know what, actually, that's we too just good sort of, to Yeah, we sort of just fell into it, really. It was always just one of those things that I'd always surrounded myself within the studio environment anyway, mm. as you well know from the first office you yes. ever came to. But that wasn't any involvement. And this, however, you know, I sort of found... I understood the uniqueness of positioning us within that environment mm. and designing or creating an environment which was very organic and led by essentially friends of ours within the music industry that we love working with and definitely created a certain energy to this building mm -hmm. and a certain nepotism amongst producers and right. you know all that sort of stuff which has been really great for everybody here yeah. um, because of the way it's been sort of you know I guess curated to a degree. I mean, you've been in this part of the industry for a wee while. Quite now. a long time. <laughs> and and th there's multiple ways. And if you look at the in 
look at the industry, yeah. how supervision companies have evolved, mm. and they've all kind of taken different, yeah. different streams. Why did you go down this particular one over, uh, you know what, we need to own catalogue, for example, or why, you know, because there's so many different ways that you can do it. Mm. I mean, I think this was also very sort of influenced by the fact that, you know, I was very sort of tied in with certain key record producers who were also involved in this project. So... It made sense at the time and I think in terms of how the business has grown and looking at how other people, you know, the one thing that sort of everybody wants access to is the talent direct Mm -hmm. or kind of the fresh up and coming songwriters or everybody wants to be kind of at the forefront of what's being signed by A&Rs. We have a really heavy hand on A&R and have someone who works with us from one of the majors who comes in every week and does, um, you know, a big A&R meeting for us, which is kind of really more about the cross-section of who's about to be signed, whether it's publishing or label, which writers are really coming through the ranks, uh, what, you know, tracks are, you know, from an industry perspective as opposed to being sync-fed. So as a third party, you've kind of, you've seen... Mm -hmm there's a need to be you've got to be on really the hot ground on it. floor on that yeah. because of the clients that you're working with understanding yeah. what their needs are mm-hmm. what those creative directors what those brands are looking for yeah. you've gone no we need that we need to know that before others yeah and that's going to be one of yeah. our USPs and stuff like because that. I mean we work across so many different brands and agencies um, but certainly I'd say quite a lot of our clients really are looking for the next big track or the next mm-hmm. big summer track or the next yep. big Christmas single, whatever it is. So it's always the you know it's always the case of who's going to find it first and how do you get there before everyone else. Mm-hmm. And really for us, it's being right in the thick of it that gives yeah, us yeah. that sharp point. Okay. And you know, and from then you know, in terms of the way the business is evolving, I think where we've ended up growing more is actually more on brand talent partnerships and alignment because it's looking at an artist or a piece of music and the Mm -hmm. you know the band attached to it and looking at what deeper sort of alignment you can do with a brand that's not just about putting a music you know piece of music on a tv commercial in a very traditional sense it's more about looking at the deeper partnerships that you can create you know greater longevity with What are some of the pressures that have come on come on you to to find those partnerships? Well, I think for us it was something that was coming up more and more because of the nature of some of the clients that we uh, that we work with, and there were a few incidents, um, you know, over the last year or eighteen months where clients had wanted to use a piece of music, but also wanted the artist to feature in the commercial as well, and you know the really it's a negotiation of rights whether Mm -hmm. it's the talent or the visual representation of the artist or whether it's uh the you know the the music being licensed and so yeah so we're working on something you know about 18 months ago Mm -hmm. where the the talent and the the music were separated and really it you know we kind of got thinking and decided actually it'd be a really good 
offering for us to be able to negotiate both the talent rights visually so as when well you, as... So when you're saying that, when you're saying that they were separated, like yeah. you, you were licensing the music, music but somebody else... Would license the artist, the, the visual representation, right. which was really crazy because, like I said, it was just a negotiation of rights mm -hmm. and it's what we do all day long. Um, but for some reason, the comfortable nature for the agency was to separate the two out and have deal or deal with the brand sort of talent negotiator mm -hmm. or whatever versus the music company yeah. i.e. us which is fine but really if you're doing a deal where the band is within the commercial and the licensing is also used using their music it kind of it it really should all be done under one roof mm -hmm. because it's a much better deal it's easier footing in terms of keeping track on the everything being negotiated properly and all rights being dovetailed who did you have to convince for it to all come <laughs> under one, one roof. Because I'm guessing the, the, the rights owners are yeah, the right, easy ones. Yeah, the rights owners are fine. It was actually really the agencies because I think brands are more used to using talent than agencies and so they were the ones who were trying, would essentially take it from them and mm -hmm. put it back in-house through, through, through the brand. Right. But really, with with things like that you kind of really need to have all parties communicating otherwise things get missed mm -hmm. so it's much easier for one person to do the whole 360 yeah and is there more uh are agencies more open to the changes the shifts in this area it's not like this is how yeah. we've done it for 20 years um i think the nature of tv production is, is you know, or any sort of content films, everything's so fast-paced anyway. For an agency, as long as it's a really easy process and it's watertight and safeguarded, yeah. an agency will always be happy because it's about the speed, it's about the efficiency and making their lives easier, essentially. Okay. One of the first brand partnerships we ended up doing was uh, Skepta's European tour okay. last year. And we married him with Size, the shoewear brand, mm -hmm. and they did the entire tour sponsorship. And we designed the whole um, the whole production of it, I guess, and the ideas and what was going to be okay. visible for the band on each, you know, on the ground, and what sort of activations were going to be done, and the social media as well was okay. quite obviously very heavy hitting with an artist like Skepta. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of slightly different from the nature. I mean, I think the thing with brand partnerships is the ideas can take any form. Mm -hmm. It originally yeah. started that with talent, we were going to be working within the realms of TV production, mm -hmm. but actually where we ended up was looking at artists and working out which brands they could work with and in which capacity. So for Skepta, it was a brand, okay. it was a tour sponsorship. With O2, it might be somebody else, yeah. actually in a TV commercial. And are those, that Skepta example, was that something that you were talking to the label? You were talking to him as an artist? We, to, we were working with him directly. Right, so it was him and then you team. went, right, we want to find this. So you went out and found the brand. Yeah. Rather than having the brand and going out and finding the artist. His management team, I think, had had an issue with a, a, another tour sponsorship opportunity mm -hmm. and we just so happened to be talking to them as a general catch-up of which after we'd met with them we then started looking at sort of brands that might be workable for a, an artist like 
Skepta yep. and were able to, you know, work a relationship with size in a very quick amount of time and mm -hmm. partner him with the three week activation for the tour. Um, involving you know we were sort of designing a lot of the creative ideas that okay. went with it so we're very fast moving and yeah. very <laughs> tiring <laughs> how many people were working on that project it was myself there were three of us from our team okay and then obviously his management team mm -hmm. who are fantastic and are very used to kind of designing things quickly and getting things into production quickly yeah. uh, for sort of tours and in that sort of project when you're working on that side of things are you have you got targets that you're hitting you know you've come up with this idea you want to do this sort of thing are you kind of thinking what you want to get from it or is it just a, let's do it and see where it goes for us we weren't briefed on what the targets were mm -hmm. the the brand essentially wanted to have an artist that was culturally relevant to where they were positioning themselves at that time right. um, so Skepta worked out perfectly and it was a partnership that I think worked well on both sides um, mm -hmm. it was the visible nature of Skepta aligned with size that worked really well and are you seeing more I guess uh, are labels and brands kind of leaning on a little bit more saying right we want to do this because we want to achieve x at the end of it kind of putting a little bit more pressure on what those projects are or is it still a little bit more I just still think like people are catching yeah I think people are still catching up and I think where brand partnerships work well is certainly if you're working from the TV angle first it's more um, where an idea or a piece of music or the creative idea is right first mm -hmm. and then you can start tagging extra things on then you start thinking about different ideas and concepts that will go with it as right. a tag on to run concurrently along the main main campaign. Mm -hmm. The Skepta thing was slightly different because it was born out of something that was in existence, i.e. The, the tour was happening, so we were governed by dates, locations, you know, that sort of you thing. You were looking for something that would mm. add value mm -hmm. and also maybe generate a little bit extra money yeah. and potentially generate whatever that may generate later yeah. on after the tour and that sort of thing. But often with TV campaigns, I mean, there's no, if you've got a, a, a commercial that's running for a year, I mean, there's, you can kind of, if the TV commercial starts to do really well, n there's nothing to stop you from thinking of, well, we could do this and drop that three months into the campaign and actually it adds an extra momentum because with TV mm -hmm. you always have, generally you have certain bursts throughout the year. It's never really one continual cycle over a year no. it'll be sort of three week bursts over key moments in the year that are related yeah. to the you know the where the brand needs to be most effective in mm -hmm. terms of their marketing cycles so it's you know with that with the brand partnership side you can tag things on at different stages within that year so it doesn't all have to be thought up right mm -hmm. from the very beginning and you, is it quite fun coming up with the creative ideas yeah, I, yeah, I definitely. Guess you can kind of the, you can really think laterally about some of that stuff. Yeah, definitely, and I think it's definitely something that ideas is kind of one of the strongest things. That, you know, one of the things that we're strongest at, I guess, yeah. because I've come from a creative agency. My whole world is creative, so mm -hmm. music is kind of more and more becoming just um you know it's part of a, an amazing process that we go through but actually the thing that i personally love is looking at the bigger picture and looking at well what else could you do with that yeah 
and that very much comes from me and the team and our ideas going to an agency and showing them other you know extra avenues you could look at to okay. create longevity and you know stronger brand partnership now because everything is so data driven mm -hmm. it's easier to present an idea with values attached to it already based on I don't know if you're doing something that's going to go out on a certain platform, well that platform has X amount of visibility within a certain demographic. So mm -hmm. data is allowing us to feed ideas into an agency uh, with a bit more foundation. Okay. You mentioned your background you mentioned mm -hmm. your starting place in creative agencies yeah. uh sarchi and sarchi yeah it's where that's it all, right it's yeah. where it all, began. It all kicked off <laughs> um how did you get there i guess how did it all kick off how did it start yeah. i started on reception there oh nice actually i was working on evening reception because i had no money so i needed an extra job so i worked in the evening after my day job oh, yeah and i started talking to lots of people there and sort of trying to really understand what an ad agency was because i didn't really know a huge amount mm -hmm. about it and understanding what all the different departments did creative versus tv versus planning and accounts so it was fa I found it fascinating and the idea that somebody there was a big element of music certainly within you know obviously TV production mm -hmm. um, which kind of got me thinking and then Andy Gulliman uh, had come over from BBH and he was responsible for a lot of the Levi campaigns and was fantastic for wanting to put music at the forefront of create of, of clients minds yep. and I started talking to him and ended up doing some work experience and it kind of snowballed from there and so it was always music it was always music was I the focus it yeah. wasn't like you came into it from a from a production side or no. even from a creative ideas side it was very much always music, music. so was yeah. there is there a is there something to be said about a musical background yeah in there? I mean I come from a musical background and I w play classical piano and harp right. and even now Playing the piano on is something I do literally on a daily basis. Okay. It's a, and I which I love because it's a way of clearing the emotions from a day yep. by sitting down and playing. Even if it's only ten minutes, if that's all I get, that's all I get. But because I've got kids running around and get home from work late and you know mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But for me, it's still a massive, massively important part of music is taking it back to basics sometimes mm -hmm. and reminding yourself what it is about music you love you know it's the emotion and the soul and the capability of emotionally unraveling and w whether that's being happy or sad or whatever there's mm -hmm. you can portray whatever you want in how you play and that's being able to do that is a very kind of it's it's a massive gift i think mm -hmm. to be able to use that as a as an emotional output so you're personal taste is well, kind of built from classical music or I, um, I like anything with the piano in for sure it's okay. always like my one of my favorite things but piano within pop like really good harmonies chords mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think I love you know that's one of the things I love still and but classical music not so much but then okay. I love Berlin Einaudi um, that's one of my favorite piano songs it's mm -hmm. just 
very simple the movement around the keys from C to F is just so simple and there's a lot of space in the music as well which I really like and it's not about it being Rachmaninoff's you know <laughs> you know or you know Rachmaninoff or Debussy it's like sometimes the most amazing pieces are actually the ones which have the most space to be able to play emotionally and do you not. come from a musical education I did yeah just you know having piano lessons or something like that did you go a little yeah. bit deeper into it yeah I did music in a level okay. and I and I did you know music to quite a high standard when I was at school right. it was just something that I loved and you ever composed I did com I have composed little bits here yeah. and there but does that help <laughs> do you think or has that helped you from you know doing the, the, the music stuff having a bit of a grounding in you have to how you build a piece of music but even when you're even when you're just discussing a piece of work with a composer and you're relaying why an ad agency doesn't like one thing to translate that to a composer in words that they understand and to be able to produce with them the idea the agency wants is yeah. definitely a technique that I think unless you have quite a strong musical background I don't know how other people would do it otherwise you have to use the right language because you understand chords and harmonies and construction and composition and why something needs to be you know how to make it sound more melancholic or how to make something happier mm -hmm. or certain keys that are going to work versus chords that won't so it's that for me is definitely quite unique to a lot of us here because yep. I think everybody or everyone on my team who works on composition can all play right. an instrument That's quite a high standard you, you look for yeah you kind of can't come in here going I just wouldn't take anyone on, in terms of working on composition, I just wouldn't take anyone on who wasn't from that background because right. I understand how incredibly useful it is. How's that, how has the advertising industry changed? Mm. Well, I think there's definitely more of a fight on jobs for budget. Mm. I think music will always hold its value. I think down to the supervisors educating continually the clients and rights holders not wavering on fees too much mm -hmm. um, you know you have to maintain the value of copyright all the time yeah. um, but I think where the biggest change for us has been probably the shift from content from TV to content mm -hmm. um, the, the online yeah all the, yeah all the online yeah. area because Music still music and using a piece of music on a global online commercial is still going to have a certain value attached to it. So it's been educating mm -hmm. the agencies How's on that. Gone? that. <laughs> they're, they're settling a bit more now, I think. <laughs> but, um, you know, TV, it's interesting because you can do so much more online because there's much fewer sort of restrictions you can be a lot more experimental because the airtime you know you don't have to buy millions of pounds worth of airtime to mm -hmm. put something up on a social channel you know there's so many different ways of reaching big audiences um, and being very target driven mm -hmm. so I think again where the ch this kind of landscapes change with advertising is also 
again, the fact that you can also now use so much more data to support a yeah. lot of these decisions. Much more focused. Yeah, yeah, decisions that you make creatively. Look, like, will this piece of music work? Because in Brazil, the demographics, 18 to 25-year-olds, well, actually, yeah, we can pull up all the stats on the artists that are relevant for that and work with that. Work are you finding that you're working that. maybe on, on global campaigns, but you're placing different pieces of music, or at least bro broaching that topic, kind of saying, well, maybe Definitely. you should be doing this in South America, but this in Europe, yeah. and having that conversation. Unless you get your big hero films where you use your, you know, your very well-known tracks, mm -hmm. um, you know, often there is a greater need to change music for different territories, yep. which is, you know, we work on kind of quite a few pro products where on global campaigns, it will change the music for different territories based on, yeah, what, mm -hmm. what's going to work better. Did you, or were you keeping a slight eye on the assorted changes in copyright law going on in the EU, the Article 13 <laughs> stuff and the fallout and the YouTube malarkey? Did you keep yeah. any kind of vague eye on that because of your understanding of what agencies are doing and what your clients are going to want to do? Yeah, definitely. And it's something that we talk about, you know, I'm on the Guild of Supervisors for, U yep. for UK and Europe. Um, and it's all of these things are things that are all brought up mm -hmm. and kind of, I guess, highlighted on a notice board for kind of other supervisors to kind of get advice and to be brought up to date on things and everything that affects our industries, um, you know, from SAG fees being affected to, yeah, Article 13, so. Yeah. The whole digital market is still finding its feet, to yep. be honest, it hasn't settled down at all. Mm -hmm. It's getting there, and I think things are settling down, but then you still have, you know, like Tidal, where, you know, Jay-Z doesn't want to put his music on Spotify, and, you know, you can't get certain music on certain platforms, and it's, it's nothing has so far kind of, there's no balance point with it yet. Mm -hmm. If you're a songwriter or a student doing production or a singer or whatever, and you want to make music, how do you think you'd get paid? Mm. It's particularly on the songwriting and production side, where if you're an artist, fine, because the majority of your money will be made from live performance. But if you're not, where do you make, how do you make your money? Because mm -hmm. radio, there are so many platforms now. You can have an artist that's massive on sync, Leon Bridges, for example. Um, did so well yep. on sync but yet isn't necessarily massive on radio so now it's about you know the charts are based on uh, you know a, a kind of a cross-section of stats that relate to radio Spotify Shazam this that and the other so mm -hmm. there's it's not one it's not one platform wins all no and so therefore royalties and accounting to writers or anyone involved in that process mm -hmm. should be a balance across any platform so it can't be just that radio plays out loads to songwriters because they always have and mm -hmm. Spotify doesn't it should be there's one rule across no matter what the platform is mm -hmm. whether it's streaming or radio or whatever and <clears throat> that's where you know again the, going back to the balance point still hasn't been sort of a sort of agreed on by the industry no. yet <laughs> well it's, uh, it, it's the, the, the tough balancing act of it's happening yeah. and we're kind of chasing after it, aren't we? It's not like, well, this is going to happen in a year's time. So we've got, I don't want to use Brexit mm. as an example, but it's not like we've got to kind of get a deal before it happens. It's, it's happening now. So we've kind of got to fudge it as we go along. But my question to kind of 
the, I guess the youth, youth the young people, <laughs> is, you know, if you're only a writer or, produ or producer and you're on the back end of everything and not in the forefront, you know, where you do get paid for the live performance, mm -hmm. then where do, how do you make your money outside of your one-off fees or a couple of points on a record being sold? Like, if the main bulk of somebody's, you know, an artist who, like, you know, makes X amount on streams, mm -hmm and then you're a songwriter that doesn't, then where do you, as a young person coming through, where do you, how do you make your money? How do you sustain it? The composers that you work with, mm. what is the range that you're working on? Are you working with seasoned composers that have been doing it for years and years and years and years and years? Or are you, do, are you working with new people? Are you finding a bit of A&R in there, finding new Always. media composers to work Always. with? Always. And also I think it's, I mean, our spectrum of composers and um, producers is huge because it's everyone from an undergraduate from the Royal College of Music where we do our workshops and collect all the kind of top 10% every year. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's always about finding a uniqueness to a composition and sometimes that can come from an established artist having a very signature sound or signature feel to yeah. them to finding someone who is fresh out of college or an undergraduate that has a particular niche whether it's jazz or big band or whatever um, and with those fresh graduate songwriters mm. are you educating them in the realities of making money from music. Because, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, where we I'm do, going yeah. with this is, it's that separation of art and commerce, I guess, is where I was kind of taking this in a roundabout yeah. way. And I'm, I was interested from, a, from your perspective on work, working with composers on a commercial basis, are they coming to you fully formed going, I understand that this is how I want to make my money, or is this, this is my artistic output, and then you're kind of having to mould it and shift it. Say, so, well, actually, that's great, but to actually get paid, it's pro we're probably going to yeah. have to do some something a little bit different there. Yeah, I mean, I think when we do our, for example, when we do our workshops or masterclasses um, at the colleges, one, you know, it's kind of twofold. One is talking about the industry and the, the, you know. The kind of pitfalls and the mm -hmm. highs, highs and lows of the yep. industry, shall we say, and things to look out for, things to be aware of within the business side. But then the other side is obviously creative and looking at a piece of music and giving them a project mm -hmm. where it will then be dissected by us as to what works, what doesn't, um, you know, the kind of feedback from what a potential client would say on it. Mm -hmm. and working within a time frame and educating them on the process really as well. Mm -hmm. And they're susceptible to that. Because yeah. kind of, I find it from someone who does work with maybe slightly younger, yeah. maybe a little bit more uh, bohemian, yeah. maybe, you know, that kind of thing of it's very much, it's an art yeah. to a lot of the, the songwriters and bands and artists yeah. that I meet. And it takes time. Yeah. For them to kind of, you know, that, that you get a lot of, yeah, but that's selling out still. But I mean, I think before you really start making money as, a, as an artist or a songwriter, um, you know, I have lots of, I've had lots of writers in these studios um, where, 
they've always been very open to doing demos for us and mm -hmm. doing re-records and okay. for that sort of thing because it's still they would get paid for demo fees and you know if you're a poor struggling musician you know X amount on a demo fee is probably more than you would make from what you're currently doing till your next production or songwriting cut mm -hmm. comes in. Okay. Guild of Music Supervisors. Mm -hmm. How's that going? It's going really strength well. Strength to strength. Yeah. Doing what it was set up to do. So I everyone's think so. susceptible to what it is. So, what are some of the things that are that the the guild are pushing for or doing at the moment? So I think one of the main things that the guild is, you know, really trying to tackle is to become, or to, to be the, the united front that we are and be able to tackle SAG, you know, the AFM fees or working mm -hmm. with the APA and IPA and different bodies from different sectors yep. and having forums for all the rights holders to air their views of issues that are coming up with um you know with supervision whether mm -hmm. it's film or tv or gaming and for us collectively to be able to try and address those issues and help correct them or find a different way of working that's more appeasing for everyone mm -hmm. There, there's seminars, there's events yeah, and there things are. like that. That's geared towards songwriters, rights owners and the people using Yeah, it, I mean, one people of, who want to get into music supervision. And I guess because one of the things, you know, there is still not, uh, there's no like degree on music supervision. You can't go to a university and say, I want to do a degree in music supervision. But it's for the first time ever starting to get really good recognition as, a, as an official profession, you know. And so part of what the Guild is doing is offering the workshops and the seminars to help educate um, well you know to be honest I find them really interesting because sometimes if they're on a slightly different field such as film mm -hmm. or you know that for me is an area that I don't work in all the time and yes even though I am a supervisor I work in a different sector so for me even whether I'm a student whether I be a student or a, an established supervisor mm -hmm. it's still very useful for lots of people who want to broaden their knowledge yep. so the workshops and seminars are, are, are definitely education is a really key important mm -hmm. part of what we're doing what are the things that you would expect you would want a someone who wants to get into this area what what do they need to know Really? They need to, they, I think really for supervisors there's no hard and fast rule other than you have to have the passion to want to be out at gigs, to be listening to as much music as possible. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, I think the more, like there's no, broadening your knowledge, your encyclopedic knowledge of music and being prepared to listen to every genre mm -hmm. will give you a much better sense of what supervisions you know it's all of us are sort of crate diggers you know I remember mm -hmm. going down to Berwick Street when I was in my 20s and spending hours and hours in record shops just listening to vinyl and choosing you know it's such a uh, an inbuilt part of my child childhood <laughs> an inbuilt part of how I grew up yeah. in my 20s was spending every Saturday afternoon in Soho listening to vinyl you know mm -hmm. and that's massive trying to find those undiscovered gems and could be anything or finding you know or buying the latest dance record and mm -hmm. you know and 
I think you I think where people kind of think that they you know can just listen to iTunes and search for things based on titles song titles it's so much greater than that you have to have an inherent passion mm -hmm. for just listening to as much music as possible looking at soundtracks and where people have found what sort of music that they've you know Tarantino's great for that because he has mm -hmm. a certain style looking at those film directors who have very distinct musical kind of concepts with every film that they Mm -hmm. that they direct. So it's still very much from your perspective, it's very much about the knowledge of the music and understanding the music and that having a passion in the music first. above the nuts and bolts of licensing and contract negotiation. And all of it is, of it. I mean it's a three, it's all of it, it's all yeah. encompassing but the other stuff you can learn. Right. Negotiation and learning how to license a piece of music, obviously that you can't do one without the other otherwise you're not a supervisor, you're mm -hmm. someone with a big record collection but the creative has to come first because if you can't get the creative right, then what are you going to license? Yeah. Soho started off in the in the traditional music supervision mm -hmm. area, uh, music searches, composition, track licensing. You're branching into and have been branching into brand partnerships for a while. Where else do you want to push the company, to move the company? Is there other areas? Uh, rights ownership, for example, or anything else that you kind of fancy dabbling in? Is it... We definitely um, want to build upon the, um, the publishing side of the business. Okay. Um, and working perhaps slightly more within sort of the Netflix and TV world. TV so that's the big world. kind of untapped yeah. bit. Yeah, now, Out, because the brand partnership, it, it, it works in parallel to what we're already doing, uh -huh. but actually the publishing side, whilst that works in parallel on some elements with what we're already doing, to develop that in slightly different sectors would be really kind of probably the next big thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. but that's, so that's what, so that's, that's, just, that's growing a catalogue? Yeah, growing a catalogue, but growing a catalogue that's been... Finding artists and, and songwriters, becoming a traditional publisher? No. No? <laughs> Not a traditional publisher. Everything we do has to be running in parallel and in conjunction, adding on, shall we say, to what mm -hmm. the existing core business is, right. which is always supervision. So publishing is about working with writers who would compose music for us within the world of either TV or film, which is mm -hmm. an area we'd love to get into, but right. you know, you never know. Yeah. And, um, and obviously working on the existing business of advertising. Mm -hmm. It's quite competitive. Massively. At the moment. Which is why I'm talking off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, you know, even in the past like five years or so, many, many more companies have, have appeared. Mm -hmm. uh, what are, I guess, the biggest challenges from your perspective? Staying. Like I think the biggest challenge for us is always, I mean, the nuts and bolts of our business, it's got such a solid heritage and foundation now because mm -hmm. we've been doing this for so long but I think the challenges are always for us looking at different ideas of pushing, I guess being progressive creatively right. and still educating agencies or clients in different ways of looking or using music. Mm -hmm. um, that's always a challenge. 
because for us to keep evolving as a company requires us to keep progressing creatively, yep. which requires us to keep educating clients in what they're able to do and be at the forefront musically. Mm -hmm. Last question. Mm -hmm. And obviously don't mention anything that you can't, but between now and the end of the year, what should we be looking out for? Is there anything that's coming out with a particular brand that kind of say, just watch this brand or watch this artist for something really funky that coming out? <laughs> or, or is it, Do is you know what? Anything? I actually can't answer that because everything that we're working on at the moment is still in production. Yep. So I can't, uh, I'd rather not say. Okay. Sorry. But no there, worries is, at there all. are some really, no really exciting things. Yeah? Yes, which are very at the elementary, very kind of early stages. And is that, say. that's. Q4, definitely, this year, is that something that's kind of I think it's more stuff that we'll work on in Q4 and we'll probably roll out in Q1. Okay, cool. Thank you very much for having me. A massive thank you there to Kate for finding the time to meet with me. Um, it was a really, really great chat. It was really great to catch up and find out what they're doing and find out what's going on in the ever-changing world of music supervision and sync and music in advertising and brand partnerships and that sort of stuff. If you are interested in this area of the music business, you can check out Soho Music multiple places online. Go to sohomusicgroup.com for their website. Go to Soho Music Group on Facebook, just search Soho Music Group, or you can find them on Instagram at underscore Soho underscore music underscore. As always, you can get in touch with me here at the podcast to ask questions of any of the guests, to throw out suggestions for future guests, or just to give a bit of feedback, positive or negative, do not mind. Um, that is at behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com follow what i'm doing here on on instagram at behind the business pod and also find me on twitter at danny champion as mentioned plenty more to come plenty more episodes between now and the end of the year i think i'm aiming for the last one of 2019 to be released on christmas eve so i hope that you come back and listen to me jibber jabber again so until then Thank you very much.